Well, uh, Happy New Year to you. Good to see you all here. And I uh, trust that you had a Happy New Year and uh, welcome the new year either uh, in bed asleep, like I did, or you stayed up. Uh, but either way, it happened and it's here. And uh, we are excited as a church of all that uh, we believe the Lord has in store for us and for you individually as members of the church. Um, we're going to be uh, biting off quite a bit at the beginning of the year. Uh, we're going to be working through a sermon series entitled Unity of Faith, where we look at the non-negotiable uh, foundational truths that make up Christianity, the things that we believe as a church that uh, unite us into one faith. There are a, a lot of uh, theologies circling around Christianity, uh, but not all are non-negotiable. Some are what we would call non-essential, things that are uh, interesting to talk about, interesting ways to think about God, but they aren't necessarily essential to the foundation of what we believe. And so what we're going to do this year to start the year is walk through the non-negotiable tenets of our faith uh, that make up our statement of faith as a church. And if you're in Christ, if you're a Christian, uh, they make up the foundations of who you are and what you believe. And so we're going to do that this year. Um, it's always interesting when you start off in a sermon series like this, there are certain folks in the room who get excited about theology, the intellects, those who enjoy thinking hard and reading uh, about who God is. And so uh, this will be fun uh, for you. And there are others in the room who are more relational, uh, who are more into the joy side of our relationship with Christ. And so this kind of uh, sermon series may not be as exciting for you. And, uh, and so here's what I would say to all. Um, you have no choice but to be a theologian. Whether you are an intellect or an, you consider yourself not intellectual, you believe something about God. And whatever you believe about God is theology. Even if you are a non-Christian, you're a theologian of sorts. You believe certain things to be either true or not true, which makes up your theology. So what we're going to do, I believe, will apply and hopefully challenge every person uh, in our church. But the prayer behind it is this. Not that we would become smarter, but that we become more unified. That this would be a time for God to weld together our hearts, draw us to a foundational set of truths that we don't negotiate on, that would then allow us to talk about our differences, to discuss maybe the non-essentials in a way that it doesn't divide us or cause friction, but that we would know who we are, not just as a church, but who we are in Christ. And so that's my prayer as we move into this series. So where we're starting this morning is with the foundation of who is God, which you can't answer in one sermon. Uh, but we're going to start off with uh, this, this revealed identity of God through the Bible. This is what uh, Christians will call the Trinity, the doctrine of the Trinity. Okay? And so rather than starting off with a word like Trinity, a doctrine, and then, and then trying to explain it, we're just going to start off with the way God reveals himself from the Bible and see where it leads us as Christians. Uh, if you've got a Bible, go ahead and, and grab it and turn to Genesis 1. If you don't have one, we put the black hardback Bibles around you uh, for you to use. Those are there for you. Feel free to grab one. Genesis 1, the opening of the narrative of the Bible. And, uh, and if you want to take notes, this will be one of those sermons where I'll be hitting a lot of verses. So you may want to grab the sermon notes in front of you and at least write down those addresses so you can go back and, and read later. Uh, we're going to start in Genesis 1 asking the question, who is God? What can we learn about who God is and the way he chose to reveal himself to us? Why do we refer to God as one God? Why do we refer to God as him? Why do Christians even have this idea of, of a Trinitarian view of who God is? The important thing is this, 
in a culture of God talk, meaning that it's very common for people to talk and use the word God, regardless of what they believe. We're a culture of God talk, right? So it's so important for us to know who God is distinguished from who God isn't, right? Because everything that gets labeled God in our culture is not God. I think you would probably agree with that. And many things in our culture that are God don't receive credit as being God. Well, how about this? In, in the Christian faith, we encourage you to talk with God, walk with God, hear from God, follow God. How are we to distinguish between what God says versus what God doesn't say unless we know him, who he is? How about just certain activities in our culture and world? We are very quick to give God credit for things that we think he has done or blame him for things that we believe he has done. And how are we to distinguish between the activities that are God in our life versus the ones that are not if we don't know who God is? So we're going to start this morning in Genesis 1 looking at the revealed character and nature of who God is If you've got your Bibles, this first two verses will be uh, familiar to you on some level. I want you to follow along as we see how the the story begins. In the beginning, so this is the beginning of what God wants us to know about the created world and who he is. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. So we know foundationally God existed before this beginning. So this is the beginning of created things, material things, things living and not living, In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the water. So we know, foundationally, that God created everything about our universe that is, everything that is material, that is measurable, both things organic and non-organic. The the periodic table and, and all the chemical compounds. It was God's idea that when you take two hydrogen molecules and connect it with an oxygen molecule that you would get water. And it was also God's idea that that water would be a basic necessity for organic life. God created that in the beginning. He, he did all that. Matter of fact, in a, just looking at our culture today, I was thinking about how quick we are to trust the material world we live in and slow to trust the spiritual we're, we're much more, even as Christians, apt to believe in and call things God that have material reflection, material measurability versus the things that don't. Yet if we actually believe the Bible, the greater reality is what is spiritual, not created, right? I mean, that's what existed before what we look at in our daily lives existed was God. So really, truly, in a spiritual sense, God is more real than the created world around us, more real than the chair you're sitting in, more real than the lunch you'll go home and eat, more real than the Dallas Cowboys being in the playoffs, more real than the roof that covers your house, more real than the concrete under your feet. According to the Bible, the greater reality is God himself. Yet we live in a culture that tends to lean towards and trust the empirical, what I can measure and tangibly touch and see, and if I... If I'm brave enough, then I'll trust, I'll, I'll, I'll trust and believe in the spiritual. Yet from the beginning, God says that what has been created is a lesser reality than he himself. Now, the first 25 verses of your Bible present God as a singular God. Right? So this means that the God of the Bible is, is a singular God. This is where we get the, word, the idea of monotheism, one God. We're not polytheists. Right? This would be like Greek mythology, multiple gods. 
So from the beginning, God wants us to think in terms of who God is as one singular God. The first 25 verses of the Bible present him that way. First verse, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Singular, right? But something changes when we get to verse 26. So let's pick this up in 24. Point out a couple of things here that will set us up to understand who God is. And God said, so we have one God, one voice. God said, let the earth bring forth living creatures according to their kinds. It's a really important phrase at this point in creation. God is creating the universe, and now he's creating creatures according to their kinds. That phrase is going to come up again. Livestock and creeping things and beasts of the earth according to their kinds. And it was so. This is more than likely the idea of a species. So you've got different sized dogs, different colors of dogs, but dogs were created according to their kind. Livestock, according to its kind. Reptiles, according to their kind. Fish, according to their kind. Verse 25, and God made the beasts of the earth according to their kinds, and the livestock according to their kinds, and everything that creeps on the ground according to its kind, and God saw that it was good. Now, now something changes, though, in verse 26. Then God said, still one God speaking, let us... Make man in our image. Now, all of a sudden, God has shifted to describing himself in plurality. We don't know how many. We don't know if he's thinking of himself plus one, himself plus two, himself plus 20. But there's an us here, and there's an our here. There's an idea of plurality. This singular God is creating everything, and he says, let us make man in our image after our Likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. Those are all the kinds of things. Verse 27, so God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him, male and female, he created them. Now here's what I would like to point out, first of all. Before verse 26, God was creating according to its kind. But now God is creating according to image. So we know that as God created two different sized dogs, they essentially were both dogs, same kind. Now God has created man in his image, not the same kind, right? But a reflection of who he is. So that what you see in man would reflect who God is. So, But notice the parallel between God saying, let us create Man in our image. And then verse 27, he says, So God created man in his own image. It sounds like he's talking about a singular man, right? But look at what he says. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Plural. So something about the way God has created us reflects who he is. And so he begins the creation of man with a plural understanding of who he is, and he creates man with a plurality. And understanding that male and female together somehow reflect who God is. Male and female, he created them. Now, again, the distinction is not according to a certain kind, but according to a certain image. A similarity, but not of the same source. So we, in essence, aren't of the same kind as God, yet there's something unique about the way God created us that we would reflect something, some truths about who he is. 
Now, the way that Genesis 1 and 2 work together is, is a beautiful tandem relationship. So God creates in six days, he rests on the seventh. Genesis 1 into Genesis 2, what happens is now we get, it's almost like you're looking at creation from a distance, Genesis 1, and then when you get into Genesis 2, it zooms in on the creation of man and we get a longer narrative of the creation of Adam and Eve. Okay, It's not that God is creating twice, it's that chapter 2 then zooms in on this creation in day six, specifically the man and the woman, to show us some things, to explain for us something about the them and the hour, the plurality of who God is reflected in who we are, male and female. Let's jump to chapter two of Genesis, verse 18. This is where God zooms in on this creation of male and female. Then the Lord God said, this is verse 18 of chapter two. Then the Lord God said, it is not good that the man should be Alone, okay? Not lonely, like he's having a sad day. It's the word singular, alone, singular. I will make him a helper fit for him. It's a beautiful understanding of how marriage is supposed to work. This complementary relationship that the male and female would actually function together in in complement of one another. Different, but complementary of one another. Now remember that God's creating male and female to do what? Reflect who he is. And so he doesn't find a helper suitable for Adam, a compliment. Now, out of the ground, the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. Whatever man called every living creature, that was his name. The man gave names to all the livestock and all the birds of the heavens and every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not a helper fit for him. So it's not that Adam was incomplete as much as the reflection of the image of God was still incomplete. And so, look at verse 21. The Lord caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. And while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. Now, God hasn't created that way anywhere else, to our knowledge. This is the one time where, rather than just creating another one, God creates one out of the same source as the first. Eve is drawn out of Adam. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, verse 22, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. The man said, this at last is not my same kind, but this is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. Something unique about this one. She's from the same source as me. We share something really deep here. And she shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore, verse 24, this is beautiful. Remember what? What are we getting at here? We're getting at who God is. This is a reflection of who God is. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and and hold fast or be united to his wife. And they shall become what? One flesh. Now, explain that to me. How do... Male and female, two individual people become one here. Plurality, yet what? Singleness about it. Now, this is not just good practical marital advice, though it definitely applies. What we're getting at here is God is saying, this is how I want you to see me. Through Eve out of Adam, from the same source, complementary and function, and the two come together so united that they're literally one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. No sin has entered the world at this point. 
So, in male and female, there's something unique about God saying, let's create something that reflects our image. Let's do it this way. Let's create a man and a woman. Let's create them. And them together, one flesh, reflect who we are, whoever we is. Whether there's two of us or three of us or five of us or 20 of us, who we are will be reflected in who they are. <coughs> Excuse me. So, verse 28, if we go back to chapter 1, the summary of it is this. And God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves. So here's what we can know about God so far. We're just two chapters in. God reveals himself in a unified plurality. Those are fairly big words. A unified plurality. That at times God thinks of himself as more than one, yet... This more than one is of the same source, unified, one. Like man and woman are supposed to be one flesh. However, God thinks of himself as unified in plurality. And so the explanation in your notes is different persons, but of the same source and complementary function. Now, don't take your current marriage and try to, and try to, try to draw God into that. Okay? Our marriages are, are pretty messed up after the, the broken the brokenness that came with the fall and with sin, right? But this is the idea of how marriage was supposed to be. A united oneness, an unbreakable bond. Man leaves mom and dad. Woman leaves mom and dad. The two are united as one flesh, permanent, right? And then they are fruitful and they multiply. Then those children do what? The man leaves, the woman leaves, and they hold fast to one another and they become one flesh. Something about the way God created this to work is to reflect who he is. Here's what we can know about God at this point. God exists in perfect community. Not the broken version that we understand here in 2015. Perfect community bound by permanent, by a permanent loving relationship. So when we get to a point where we're able to identify who the we is, the, the, the plurality of God is, whoever they are, they work in a beautiful complement, never against one another. Never trying to push one's will over the other. See, that's why we can't compare it to our modern day marriages, right? Because rather than complimenting, oftentimes we're competing. What I want right now, what I think is best right now, what I hope happens. Well, that's not what I think. Some of you are wondering how I listened to your conversation on the way to church today. You see, that's, that's broken reflection. The way God designed it is that my wife and I would be in perfect unison with one another. My will would be her will. Her will would be my will. My heart would be her heart. Her heart would be my heart. What I love, she would love. What I, what I hate, she would hate. What I call wise and best, she would call wise and best. Now, here's the thing. So this is how God created it to work. Man and woman reflecting who God is. After the fall, man and woman have become broken. That image has become marred and, and broken. But God hasn't changed. So God is still the God of Genesis 1, though we don't reflect him that way with the consistency that we were created to reflect him. Here's what, what, what we know as well. God exists as the author and authority over all creation. Whoever God is, he exists as the author, according to Genesis 1, and the authority over all creation. He resides as a sovereign ruler over the created world. 
Now, if you continue moving forward in your Old Testament, you're going to come across passages that continue to perpetuate these truths. Okay? I'll just give you a few examples. Um, When you get to the uh, Ten Commandments, the opening of the Ten Commandments, Exodus 20, starting in verse 2, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. Okay, now we're back to a singular understanding, right? God is one. There aren't many gods. There's one God. He even says, don't have any other gods before me. We get to Deuteronomy 6, verse 4. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. One God, love him with everything that you are. Yet, even in the midst of the fall, Genesis 3, after creation, God says this, then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us, knowing good and evil. Now lest he reach out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. A few chapters later, Genesis 11, at the Tower of Babel, if you're familiar with that story, God says this, Come, let us go down and there confuse their language so that they may not understand one another's speech. Now, we, we could get to a place where we would say, well, maybe that's God and the angels, maybe God and his, you know, and his other deity friends here. Yet in Genesis 1, when God said nothing else existed, and I'm going to create something to reflect who I am, he speaks of himself in plurality. We weren't created in the image of the angels. We were created in the image of God. Isaiah 6 Way, way down the road in your Old Testament, God speaks to the prophet Isaiah in Isaiah 6. Isaiah says, And I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send and who will go for us? And Isaiah said, Here I am, send me. Now, the Old Testament then continues this theological understanding of who God is, that he's one God, singular, one source, yet operating in multiple personhood in a way that he would call himself us, in a way that he would say things like our image. When we get to the New Testament, which is where we're going to go next. So the first four books of your New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, these gospel accounts, are in our Bible to introduce us to who Jesus is. Every one of the gospel writers introduces Jesus to us in a strong connection with the Old Testament. Right? It's why Matthew begins with so-and-so begat, so-and-so begat, so-and-so. Luke has a, has a similar but slightly different list. We can get into the reasons for that later. But nevertheless, what they want you to see is this one I'm introducing you to, he's connected. He's embedded in the Old Testament. But none of which, I think, goes back further than the Gospel of John. John chapter 1, in, starting in verse 1, is John... A disciple, apostle of Jesus, he introduces Jesus to us. Look at where he starts in John chapter 1. He says, in the beginning, so what does John have on his mind? We just read it, right? Genesis 1, in the beginning was the Word. Now we don't, at this point, if this is the first time we're reading it, we don't know who the Word is, do we? We don't know who he's talking about. All he says is that in the beginning was the Word. So maybe he's just referring to God and symbolically or metaphorically calling God the Word. I mean, he used words to create, so maybe that's what John means here. But he goes on to say, and the Word was with God. So in order for there to be a with, right, there has to be a plurality. 
or else that verse doesn't work. The word was with God, but then to make it more complex, what does he say? And the word was God. Both with God and was God. He was, whoever the he is he's talking about, was in the beginning with God. And all things were made through him. That sounds pretty familiar. We just went through, right, creation. All things were created through him. And without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. So not only did he create a uh, a periodic table and chemical compounds, he actually gave life. He breathed life. He created organic life. Verse 5 says, the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. So the word is with God in the beginning, creating all things, and the word is God. Now, it's not really until we get a little bit further along in this same chapter that we realize for sure that he's talking about Jesus. Look at what he says in verse 14. And the word, same word, became flesh and dwelt among us. God with us, Emmanuel. The word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory. Glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. And this is how John wants to introduce Jesus to us. Jesus was in the beginning. He was with God, creating. He was God, creating. Nothing was made except that which was made through him. And now he has become flesh and walked among us, revealing us the glory of the Father as a son sent from the Father full of grace and truth. Jesus himself said in John chapter 10, verse 30, I and the Father are one. So at this point, all we have are two persons, right? So if this is where all the Bible revealed to us, we wouldn't be Trinitarian, we'd be dualitarian. This idea of God and Son are somehow one, but operate differently, right? Two different persons. The Son, this is what we know so far, the Son was present and active in the creation of the universe. That's what John says. You want to know who Jesus is? He was active and involved in the creation of the universe. We get further into the New Testament, into um, one of Paul's writings, um, 1 Corinthians chapter 8, um, looking at just verses 5 and 6, if you want to jot down these notes. Paul says this, For all the, although there may be so-called gods in heaven or on earth. So he's talking about false deities, um, thinking about maybe Greek mythology, other religions in the world. Though there may be so-called gods in heaven on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords, yet for us, verse 6, there is one God. Okay, Paul, thanks for that. That's helpful. There's one God. Look at what he says. The Father, from whom all things and for whom we exist, and one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom are all things and through whom we exist. So here, not only do we have this connection between Son and Father again, the Father was actively evolved. Actively evolved in the creation of the universe. It wasn't just Jesus creating, it was the Son and the Father creating. The Father was present and active in the creation of the universe. So we take all this and we we try to understand who God is, and then we go back and read Genesis again. Look at the first two verses of Genesis with me one more time. 
in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void. The darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God. Now who's involved? The Holy Spirit of God. The Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. The Holy Spirit was present and active in the creation of the universe. So now we're beginning to formulate an idea of what God meant when he said, let us create them in our image. Who's the hour, according to the Bible? Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. I want to stop for just a minute, okay? Let's pull the brakes, push in the clutch, come to an idol. One of, if not the, most significant foundational truths of all that we believe in Christianity, yet one of the most neglected teachings in the church. Why? Because it's hard to understand. So if you're in a place right now thinking, gosh, I can't wrap my brain around that. One God, one source, like Adam and Eve, one source, yet functioning in multiple persons, right? God the Father, God the Son comes to earth. Jesus is baptized, and God the Father says what? This is my Son in whom I'm well pleased. And then the Holy Spirit descends like a dove. Three persons operating, doing different things. Jesus was being baptized. The Father was speaking. The Spirit was descending. Okay? Here's what we have to be careful of as people, as objects of creation that we don't subject the identity of God to what we can understand or formulate. Here's what I would say. Would you really want to trust a God that you could fully comprehend in your mind? The God that you can fully comprehend in your mind, illustrate, explain, is a false God, a God you created. God presents us, presents himself to us in a way that he wants us to understand him. And just because I don't get it fully doesn't make it not true. Matter of fact, I don't want to believe in a God that I can fully understand, wrap my mind around, and measure. Because that, in fact, would be a God I made up. So if that's where you are right now, you're in a good place. The question is, by faith, are you going to believe that this is who God is? It's how he chose to present himself to us. This is how I want you to see me. I'm inviting you to believe in me and see me this way. As you continue to read through your New Testament over and over again, this Trinitarian imagery of God comes up. John 14, if you love me, this is Jesus, you will keep my commandments and I will ask the Father. Jesus, speaking to the Father, I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper, speaking of the Holy Spirit, to be with you forever, even the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. It's from the Gospel of John. From the writings of Paul, 1 Corinthians 2, verse 10, these things God has revealed to us through the Spirit, for the Spirit searches everything, even the depths of God. For who knows a person's thoughts except the spirit of that person, which is in him. So he's talking about the spirit of God now. So also no one comprehends the thoughts of God except the spirit of God. 
couple more examples if you're writing notes, jot these down. Ephesians 4, Paul talking about the unity we have in Christ as Christians with one another as a church, uses God the Father to, to, to build that basis. He says, there is one body, meaning the body of Christ, and one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God, and Father over all, who is over all and through all and in all. Now, the point of all these verses is not to explain for us how it works or how God works, but to show us that God works. Not to fully explain so that we can go, oh, I get it now, it makes sense to me, but that we might be able to recognize who God is and what God says and what God does. It's not that we would fully understand how he works, it's that we would come to embrace that he works, that we would recognize his works and be able to say, this is God and this is not. To hear a voice inside of us and be able to determine that's the voice of God versus what I heard yesterday, that was not the voice of God. To see something happen in our lives or uh, in the world around us and be able to say that was of God versus seeing things in the world happen and be able to declare that was not of God. See, we can't make those declarations unless we know him the way he's chosen to reveal himself to us. Ephesians 2.18, one verse talking about Jesus, for through him, Jesus, we both have access in one spirit to the Father. Right there in one verse, Paul says it. Through Jesus, we both have access in one spirit to the Father. I probably, I would, I would go to Matthew 28 as a place of great significance to our understanding of the Trinity. This is from Jesus himself. It's his great commission to his disciples. It's the launching of the church. It's the foundation of the Christian church. And Jesus speaks these words to his disciples before he ascends into heaven. Matthew 28, verse 18. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. How much authority? All authority. Who but God could say that? Right? You... If Jesus wasn't fully God, he could say, some authority has been given to me. But Jesus is saying, all authority has been given to me. I'm God. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore, since that's true, go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, all ethnos, all ethnicities, baptizing them in the name of, this is from Jesus himself, the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age, speaking now of the Spirit. This is our pronouncement. This is our commission as a church. The foundation of what we're supposed to be doing is we introduce God to people and people to God and, and invite people to come and believe, right? We're inviting people to believe in a Trinitarian God, a God who says, baptize them, but this is how you do it. Baptize them in the name of the Father, it's important, the Son, it's important, and the Holy Spirit. Foundation of what we're to be doing and what we believe. God reveals himself through the Bible in plurality, of the same kind, right? Manifested in three different persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, working in beautiful, harmonic, complementary unison. What man and woman were actually created to do before the fall Right? Gives us a better image of how the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit work. Same love, same passions, 
Same wisdom. What the Spirit sees and calls good, the Father sees and calls good. What the Father sees and calls wise, the Son sees and calls wise. What the Father sees and calls evil, the Holy Spirit sees and calls evil. One mind, one heart, perfectly unified in community. Now, let's talk for a minute about, first of all, um, our statement of faith as a, as a Christian church. If you go to our website and look at our statement of faith, here's the first statement you're going to read. This is who we believe God is. We believe in one God, creator of all things, holy, infinitely perfect, and eternally existing in loving unity, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. We can continue on. The statement continues with this, having limitless knowledge and sovereign power, God has graciously purposed from eternity to redeem a people for himself and to make all things new for his own glory. It's really going to lead us into next, the next three weeks. What we're going to do is next week we're going to come back and we're going we're to look at the work of the Father. Specifically, where the Bible says this is what the Father is doing, what the Father has done. Then the next week we're going to come back and look at the work of the Son. This is who the Son is. This is what the Son is doing and has done. And then we're going to end with the Holy Spirit. This is the work of the Holy Spirit. So we're going to pick this back up next week. But, but just so far in this series, we've learned something, not just about who God is, but about who we are. Despite our broken marriages, despite our broken community, we were created to live and abide in relationship with husband and wife and also in community. Why? That we might truly reflect who God is. You see, your marriage isn't ultimately about you. Whoa. Does God want you to have joy in your marriage? Absolutely. Does God want your spouse to, to bring a complimentary function to your daily life and your marriage, a sense of completing you? Not to go Jerry Maguire on you, but yeah. But not solely for your own good. You're, you and I were created to reflect a higher reality, a deeper truth. Your marriage, even on the days when you're not happy with one another, and yet you dig in deep. And you say, there's nothing going to separate us. Right now, our wills aren't matching up. Our loves aren't matching up. But we're going to stay committed to this. What are you doing? You're saying, we refuse to break from our purpose of reflecting who God is. As soon as division sets in, the oneness is broken. We've ceased to do what we were created to do. You know, that also applies to the church. That's what Paul was getting at in Ephesians 4. The same way that man and woman were created to be one, you and I in Christ are to be one. One body. 1 Corinthians 12, Ephesians 4, so on and so forth. The church is, is to be a reflection of who God is. That when people see us, when the lost world looks at the church, the first thing they would see is our unity with one another, not our division. This is why we need to talk about the non-negotiables of our faith. See, I'll give you an example. Non-negotiable non -negotiable versus what I would say non-essential. Non-negotiable. God is the sovereign ruler of our universe. Non-negotiable. If you don't believe that's true, we don't have a unity of faith. Yet, what, to what extent does God inflict his sovereignty? Now we've got a non-essential conversation. This is where we get groups of theologians called Calvinists or Arminians, where we debate on to what extent does God's will supersede man's will? 
It's a non-essential conversation. As long as you and I believe at our core, God is sovereign. Okay? And to the extent that he chooses to enforce that sovereignty, we can, we can disagree on. I'll give you another example. Um, this, the sins of the world being placed on Jesus. A non-negotiable of our faith. You and I are saved by grace through Christ. The work that Jesus did on the cross, he was dying for our sins. He was bearing the penalty that we, each one of us, deserved. And he took our sins to the grave and resurrected. That by believing on Jesus, that our sins would be forgiven. Completely. Completely forgiven. We would be made new and righteous like him. Now, that's non-negotiable. If you don't believe that's true, we don't have a unity of faith. Yet, a non-essential conversation would be this. Did Jesus die for the sins of the world or just the sins of those who would be saved? I mean, he has foreknowledge, right? So he knew those who would become Christians. Did he just bear the sins of those who would become Christians? Or did he even bear the sins of the world of those who wouldn't be? See, that's a less essential conversation, isn't it? We could land on different places on that conversation and still have a unity of faith as long as you and I believe that Jesus died for the sins of the world and that meaning my sins. What happened to Jesus was owed to me and he took my place. It's non-negotiable. There's no other way to get into heaven, to get into God's kingdom or be considered righteous or forgiven. But through that, that's why Paul says in Ephesians 2.18, through him, through the son, we've been given access through one spirit to the Father. Uh, let's, use the, let's bring up the Holy Spirit while we're talking about essentials versus non-essentials or non-negotiables. Um, the Spirit of God lives in those who believe. If you are a Christian, your life has been sealed by the Holy Spirit of God. He, he dwells in you. He's guiding you, directing you, convicting you, stirring passions, speaking truth to you. If you're a Christian, the Holy Spirit is in you. Here's where we can disagree, though. The filling of the Holy Spirit. Some believe that you're saved, completely filled to the greatest extent. You can never be more full of the Holy Spirit. Others believe that the filling of the Holy Spirit can come and go, and there are multiple fillings. Not essential. You and I can have a unity of faith and land in different places on, on the filling of the Holy Spirit. But if you and I don't both believe that the Holy Spirit seals and dwells all believers, we don't have a unity of faith. Now, here's where I would like to land in terms of, of application and challenge for us. You and I were created to live in community and in relationship, loving, permanent, abiding relationship. Marriages, some of our marriages here today maybe need some attention and some work in 2015. Maybe you've even gotten to the point where you're, you're talking about counseling, getting help, working on things. My hope for you is that that would be more than just a New Year's resolution, that it would truly be something that you would seek to do. And not because you just want to be happy, but because you want to find a joy that is found when you and your spouse are reflecting the image of God. And you realize that the unity you have with your spouse, it matters. You were created to have that unity. The second hope is for us as a church. I'll be real honest with you about what I'm seeking the Lord on right now as a pastor of this church. Um, we've experienced some, some growth in the last couple of years. And with what's about to happen in our community, um, if you want to find out more, come to our all-members meeting here in a few weeks. We'll announce it to you. We're going to let you know what's about to happen in a five-mile radius. 
okay? I mean, we're going to have a hard time not growing. It's a good thing, right? We're supposed to be making disciples. Now, just growing, though, by itself is not a good thing unless we grow in what? In unity and community. My prayer is that before that happens, God would reveal to the elders of this church and the leaders of this church how we can prepare ourselves to maintain unity in the midst of growing. Some of you, even right now, are walking possibly in disunity with other believers, either in this church or in another church, and and you know it. And God is saying, that doesn't reflect who I am. Don't go make good with them so that you can spend next Christmas together. Go make things right with them that you might reflect my image in the world. I'm unified. There's no division in me. What you see the Father do, you see the Son do. What you see the Son do, you see the Spirit do. What you hear the Spirit say, the Father says. So it is to be with you, my people. And so maybe this will be a year that you pursue reconciliation 